Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. This is MPB News. Hi, this is Karen Brown. Thanks for checking out the Mississippi Edition podcast. If you like what you hear, click subscribe, hit like, or leave us a comment if your app has that feature. Then find other MPB podcasts by searching MPB Think Radio on your favorite podcasting platform. Thanks. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Thursday, April 30th. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, Mississippi senators address residents regarding the federal response to the coronavirus pandemic. And we examine the role of the state's banks in the Paycheck Protection Program. Then, in today's book club, a Mississippi poet who has just been awarded a Guggenheim Fellowship. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Governor Tate Reeves is praising the federal response to coronavirus. This comes as the nation reaches over 1 million cases and a death toll of around 61,000. The Republican invited both Mississippi senators to his daily press briefing yesterday and applauded the efforts of the Trump administration. I know that this will not be popular in the national media, but I will tell you that I have been very impressed with the federal response. People want to gloss this over. But this is a fact. No American has died from coronavirus because our hospital system was overwhelmed. In other countries, they ran out of ventilators. In other countries, they ran out of ICU beds. In some other countries, they ran out of beds altogether, but not in America. That's largely because of the leadership of President Trump, Vice President Pence, our coronavirus task force, and our quick response by the United States Congress. That simply doesn't get said enough. People shift the goalpost, and they'll find a new way to attack the president. But I really think President Trump deserves our prayers, our gratitude, and our support. Both senators say they're proud of their roles in Congress passing the CARES Act, a national relief fund in response to the coronavirus pandemic. While he's confident in what the legislation is doing, senior Senator Roger Wicker says the act is not perfect and some issues need to be addressed. He says he's also prepared to protect defense appropriations as the Senate reconvenes next week. The CARES Act was the largest bill ever passed by the United States Congress. And it was implemented in record time. That is not to say it's all gone perfectly. 
there have been some frustrations and hiccups and stumbles along the way, including the need for more money on the Paycheck Protection Program, which we passed last week. We also need to continue providing effective oversight of these new programs to make sure the money is spent efficiently. The Senate will be back in session on Monday of next week. Our committees will be working on issues such as water resources and infrastructure, including rural broadband, and we need to resume work on the annual appropriations process. A lot of attention has been given to China during this discussion to their conduct and misinformation campaign during this crisis. But we also need to keep in mind that China is continuing its military buildup, and so are our other adversaries around the globe. With that in mind, I'm leading an effort to prevent cuts in our defense spending and to protect defense manufacturing, including aircraft manufacturing and shipbuilding. This will be a good investment for our national security as well as for the thousands of small businesses and the millions of Americans that make up our military supply chain. One thing Senator Cindy Hyde-Smith says she's concerned about, rural hospitals across Mississippi. She says the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services has set aside $10 billion to help rural health care providers. One of the things when this first started that really concerned me because I grew up in a rural area is the rural hospitals. And, um, you know, the health care that has just been provided there during this trying times when everybody is so afraid. They're afraid for themselves. They're afraid for their families. And, you know, the least cough, the least uh, sniffle, they're uh, so concerned that they may be testing positive for covid and so the rural health care has been really important, and I stay very close to mine. The uh, two of the things that I have been uh, very pleased with is we had a conference call this morning with Secretary Azar, Health and Human Services. And, uh, you know, one of the things that they have already done before today, they agreed to set aside $10 billion specifically to help rural health care providers. And uh, that money should go out to the rural health care workers in the hospitals either the end of this week or the first of next week. The second thing is some of our county-owned hospitals were not covered under the Paycheck Protection Program. So uh, the Treasury amended its regulations to make sure that our small county-owned hospitals are eligible now for that. The state government has declined to expand Medicaid, which would pump federal funding into Mississippi's rural hospitals. Governor Reeves has recently stated he sees no scenario in which he would support the expansion. The governor also credited the January travel restrictions on China for the lower than projected COVID rates. I think we did have an early uh, strategy by the, the federal government, as, as you have uh, heard President Trump say repeatedly. Uh, much to the chagrin of Joe Biden and many other Democrats around the country, he was very early uh, to shut down travel to China, uh, particularly the Wuhan region of China. Uh, I think that went a long way towards the fact that our models, which once projected between 250,000 and a million Americans uh, dying uh, from this horrible virus, uh, has been uh, reduced significantly, and certainly that has been the case uh, in Mississippi. Reeves did not mention the role of state or federal mitigation efforts in slowing the spread. 
As case numbers continue to rise and residents enter their second month of sheltering at home in some parts of the country, alcohol and substance abuse are on the rise. Mississippi Department of Revenue Commissioner Herb Frierson reports recent alcohol sales are higher than the peak holiday season. Daisy Carter is the executive director of the National Council on Alcoholism and Drug Dependence of Central Mississippi. She says she and other health specialists are concerned about the rise in alcohol sales. I know for sure with COVID-19, um, it has added, you know, uh, an underlying mental and emotional issue to those who are in either, you know, just re- that have addiction or, you know, in their early stages of recovery. You know, they have to deal with stress, loneliness, depression, and especially isolation from, you know, individuals. Um, so that is becoming more of an issue and has impacted a lot of people. And we've been kind of trying to put information out there on social media just to, you know, letting people know that your sobriety is very, very important and, you, you know, you have to maintain your recovery um, during this time. What are some, I know there are so many misconceptions surrounding um, drug dependence and alcohol addiction. What are some misconceptions, especially now um, during the pandemic, that are kind of elevated and maybe even more harmful to people who are, who do, who are suffering from addiction or who are in recovery? There are a lot of misconceptions, and that's the reason why our agency was actually um, established was to eliminate those misconceptions as well as uh, eliminate those stigmas um, who people believe that they didn't have the willpower or the strength or they lack moral, um, they lack the moral compass and were unable to just stop drinking or put it down. Um, People are just unable to do that. Some people um, use alcohol and drugs as a coping mechanism to an underlining issue. So they use alcohol and drugs to cope with uh, a more more in-depth issue that they're facing. So it could be anything as far as a trauma, uh, some traumatic event that happened in their childhood or something that traumatically happened to them recently. And so they're not able to put it down. That's their way of self-medicating themselves. A lot of oftentimes people are self-medicating using drugs or alcohol. And there's an underlying reason um, of why the addiction even started to begin with. Um, This might be an obvious question, but when you go through events like this, I mean, this pandemic we've never seen before, but when you're going through major events like this, are there increases um, in the number of people who are suffering from alcohol addiction and drug dependence? Yes. um, There is an increase of number of um, users and abusers. So you have a lot of people that... um, are doing using drugs and alcohol again to just do it because they're bored. Um, they have nothing. They think they have nothing else to do, so why not drink or do drugs? And then you also have those people who have a, an addiction and they can't um, access that. They don't have that regular schedule or that uh, the opportunity to maintain that re- regular daily life of going to a meeting, going to work, things of that nature. And they're stuck at home in isolation alone. And so that um, adds to their depress- depression um, and it triggers things. It, it, it can trigger something. So just like with the holiday season, we have our numbers and support and services actually go down during holiday season. But as soon as the holiday season is over, we see our services are needed 10 times more. 
Daisy Carter is executive director of the National Council on Alcoholism and Drug Dependence of Central Mississippi. She spoke with our Alexandra Watts. The Mississippi Department of Health is continuing its aggressive testing strategy this week through additional one-day collection sites. Two sites will be available tomorrow, one in Calhoun County at the Calhoun County Extension Office in Pittsburgh, the other in Capaya County at the Multipurpose Building in Hazelhurst. Anyone experiencing symptoms related to COVID-19 and feels they should be tested must first go through a free screening from a UMMC clinician through the C Spire Health UMMC triage app. To stay up to date with the latest coronavirus news in Mississippi, visit mpbonline.org slash coronavirus. Coming up, we examine the role of the state's banks in the Paycheck Protection Program. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Allison Walker, the lady auto mechanic, host of AutoCorrect. If you're enjoying this podcast, try my podcast, autocorrect we help steer you in the right direction with your car problems find me on any podcast platform or at autocorrect.mpbonline.org This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. The second round of funding for the Paycheck Protection Program is underway. President Donald Trump signed the bill last week, injecting an additional $484 billion in financial aid. Mississippi's banks will be managing the distribution of funds allocated to the state. Gordon Fellows, president and CEO of the Mississippi Bankers Association, explains the role local banks play in getting the aid to business owners. Bloomberg did an analysis of uh, what they expected the the total eligible payroll to be in every state, right? Because not every business can qualify. Right? You got to have a certain number of employees, and you got to have a certain revenue number to qualify. According to Bloomberg's analysis, they put the total number for Mississippi at around three point four billion dollars of payroll that, that could be covered by PPP loans. And in the first round, we covered $2.5 billion. So we were close to 70% um, covered eligible payroll in the first round of funding, um, which made us, you know, depending on how you slice the numbers, you know, either, either within the top 10 or top 15 most efficient using states of the program, which I think is great news for Mississippi borrowers. Sure. Really, yeah. uh, we've seen a lot of negative press, but Mississippi companies, you know, got more than their fair share in the first round. And there, there was criticism in the first round that um, some large companies, large companies, uh, received a great deal of the money. Who decides who gets the money and how much they get? Well, so this is a problem in the way the law is structured and, and the problem with the lack of guidance that, that's come out, right? And the the... Part of the issue with this thing is it's such an urgent program. The SBA stood it up so fast they didn't really have all the rules in place yet. Uh, and so they're starting to issue rules you know, now to govern that for this round of funding. But um, the, the, the short answer is the borrower certifies that they're eligible, and the bank relies on the borrower's certification. So if, if, those, if those large companies um, received one of these loans and then – later determined that they weren't eligible, you know, they falsified their certification and they're subject to penalty. Gordon, are there Mississippi businesses who applied during the first round and then the money ran out and they're hoping to 
be reconsidered or considered for the first time during this next round? Yeah, absolutely. And part of the issue in the first round was they opened it up in the first week um, to, to general businesses. And then at the end of, of the cycle, they opened it up to independent, self-employed and independent contractors. Um, and so by the time we figured out and got guidance from the government on how to calculate the maximum loan amount for an independent contractor or a self-employed person, uh, the money was gone already. So most of those people didn't get loans in the first cycle, and we have a lot of those people in Mississippi. And so in this cycle, uh, those loans have all been submitted to banks, and most of them have been approved already. And, you know, So getting sort of into what's happened in the last three days, the program turned back on at 9.30 Monday morning and crashed immediately. Um, uh, there's so much demand, uh, the system couldn't keep up with all the loans that were banks were trying to upload all across the country. Um, it was down pretty much all day Monday, but it seems to be working again. Can you tell us a little more about the criteria for, for businesses that are applying, why they, excuse me, why they might be rejected? Right. So the, the, the basic criteria is you have to have 500 or fewer employees and you have to show you know, that, that COVID-19 has caused you economic damage. And the bank's going to rely on your certification on that question as a borrower. The bank, the bank isn't charged with, you know, making that determination. That's up to the borrower to, to be able to show it. Um, that, that, those are the two big questions. It, do you or do you not have 500 employees and have you, have you received damage? Some businesses, uh, particularly hospitals, Karen, couldn't qualify in the first round of funding because they're, if they're a nonprofit county-owned hospital, there was a question as to whether or not they were a business or if they were a, um, a part of the state, and state entities don't qualify. Um, you know, we raised that, that issue with our congressional delegation, and, and our senators um, were really helpful on that and, and got us some guidance late last week to say that even if the local hospital in Franklin County or Sharkey County is owned by the county, they're still a rural nonprofit, and they ought to qualify. So there are some hospitals that are getting loans this cycle that weren't able to get loans in the first cycle, which I think is really good news. And I know that Mississippi has been – well, you say that the, that Mississippi has been more successful for processing the loans. Why do you think that is? Yeah, I think that um, we are blessed in this state to have a really broad and diverse network of local banks. Uh, and that, com- you know, combines with um, really sort of strong, larger institutions that are chartered here, too. We have, um, you know, four or five banks that are close to $10 billion in Mississippi that are all locally owned banks. And so they have a ton of scale. Uh, and that's important because they can touch a lot of businesses, you know. And then on the other end, we have really integral local banks that are really important parts of small towns. And so... You know, the, the, the short answer to the question is relationship banks matter, right? This, you've got a real relationship with your banker. You're, 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 you're getting taken care of in this program. If you're, if you're an account, um, that, 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 you know, that's just an account that doesn't, you don't know people at the bank, that makes it harder. Um, and so, uh, if, if this has proven anything, it's proven that there's a lot of value to locally chartered institutions. Bottom line, if you've made an application already, you have to wait. And if you haven't, call your banker today. Is that right? Call them. Yeah, as soon as you can. Gordon Fellows is the CEO, president and CEO of the Mississippi Bankers Association. Gordon, thank you. Thank you. And we appreciate all the work y'all are doing to keep people informed with all this. 
Coming up in today's book club, a Mississippi poet who has just been awarded a Guggenheim Fellowship. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Right now, mpbonline.org is your resource to stay up to date on the news about COVID-19. The coronavirus is a worldwide pandemic, and MPB is here to let you know how that affects Mississippi. mpbonline.org has an entire section dedicated to the coronavirus with links and updates from the Center for Disease Control and the Mississippi Department of Health. Visit our website right now, mpbonline.org, to find out what you need to know. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. A Guggenheim Fellowship is a prestigious honor whose recipients demonstrate exceptional creative ability in the arts. This year, one Mississippian has been so honored. She is the first from the University of Mississippi in 70 years and the first ever Asian American to receive the fellowship. Poet and Ole Miss English professor Amy Nazikamatala. It's just so much a part of who I am and it's impossible for me to separate it. So one thing I will say though is that I love exploring my family's like culture with food or folklore through my poems. It was a very rare thing to find any person of color writing and, and be in a poetry anthology. So I'm just so happy to be able to use words like pancit or lumpia, my favorite dishes from the Philippines in a poem. And, and now have students say, oh, my gosh, I, I've had that dish before in a restaurant or my mother makes this dish or, you know, things like that. It informs me in that I don't ever set out to write any one topic again. But at the same time, I love that there's such a rich diversity in writing today that wasn't even possible or that certainly wasn't celebrated even 20 years ago. Congratulations. You have been awarded a Guggenheim Fellowship. Oh, thank you. Thank you. That's just incredible. And it's also very notable for you personally for several reasons. Tell us why. When I first told my parents I wanted to be a poet, fame was not even part of the equation. (laughs) We were taught early on, you know, that this was going to be a life exploring reading and writing and whatever that brings is kind of a bonus, you know, that kind of thing. So I very much knew going into this that it was never to seek accolades or awards. This is all a happy kind of result of years of a of a of a grown up life working and reading, reading so much. But to be the first um active faculty member of color at the University of Mississippi to ever receive this award is just mind boggling. I, I think I know what it means to not see anybody who looks like myself growing up, again in books or I didn't really see any Asian American poets in anything that my teachers were teaching us. So to be able to be in that position now I just didn't know it was possible growing up. What this does for me more than anything else, it gives me a space of time to work a little bit more on my poetry, but also it helps give me um, a chance to say that even something that I hadn't seen before was possible. Also, you're the first recipient from Ole Miss in, what, 70 years? (laughs) Yes, something like that, almost 70 years. And the only one in Mississippi. So there are a number of levels that you're being honored, and that's great. I've been applying for this, you know, really since... um, Goodness, I want to say since 2007, 2008, it'd be my annual tradition, like taxes, getting my annual rejection. <laughs> and I just, I just never gave, you know, I just never stopped sending my, my, my stuff out. So it, it was absolutely just such a joyous surprise to get, to get not the rejection notice, but to actually get an acceptance for once. You have four collections of poetry and 
coming up in August, you're releasing uh, a nonfiction series of essays, nature essays. It's called World of Wonders in Praise of Fireflies, Whale Sharks, and Other Astonishments. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, yeah. They're um, they're very short. So my, de- under, my graduate degrees were in uh, writing poetry and creative nonfiction. So I'm very excited. This is going to be my first um, hardback book, my first collection of prose. And it's really kind of celebrating all the plants and animals um, on this planet that I adore in small little essays. So no essay is more than about three or five pages. Um, but it gives about, I'd say, 70% learning interesting facts about this animal or plant and about 30% memoir of something that connected me to the narwhal, for example, an Arctic um, whale. That's one of my favorite whales ever. So it's the animals that don't often get celebrated, um, like a dancing frog, you know, but that I think that should be celebrated. So, you know, growing up, I read all these books about nature, but I hardly ever saw anybody writing, you know, I, I hardly ever saw any Asian American people writing. So so for a long time, it was like, what, are Asian Americans only on the computer or, or <laughs> you know, or mathematicians or scientists, you know, like some of us like to be outside, too. So it's, it's kind of a celebration. It's a love letter, really, to the planet. Amy Nazikan Motatel is a poet and a professor of English at the University of Mississippi. Again, congratulations, and thank you so much for being with us. Oh, thank you so much, Karen. It's been such a delight. Thank you. I appreciate it. This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Thanks for listening to the Mississippi Edition podcast from MPB News and MPB Think Radio. Don't forget to subscribe if you haven't already, and if your app lets you, leave a comment or review. We really do appreciate it. Remember, you can always get in touch with MPB News on Facebook and Twitter, and fresh episodes of the podcast are posted every weekday morning. I'm Karen Brown. Thanks for listening. This is Mississippi Edition from MPB Think Radio.